Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be asking what a model minority is with our guest, Emily Lee. Please visit whyradioshow.org for our archives, show notes, and to support the program. Click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. There's a Doonesbury comic strip from during the Ford administration that goes like this. Uncle Duke, a drug-addled narcissist modeled after Hunter S. Thompson, is being sent to China as a diplomat. He's explaining to someone why he was chosen over someone else. The president, he says, is toughening up. He will not be duped by the Reds. It's his own record, Duke explains, that makes him an ideal diplomat, saying, I've shown I know how to work with minorities. While Duke continues his rant, the guy he's talking to just stands there puzzled, thinking, Minorities? It's a brilliant moment. As Duke goes on to explain that the Chinese are, in his words, an especially tricky people, the reader is forced to come to terms with a word that purports to mean one thing, but actually communicates another. A minority is supposed to be a small subset of a larger group of people. But even in the mid-70s, China had the largest population in the world. Politically, the term minority isn't a numerical designation. Even if, in 1975, China had had fewer people than, say, India, they'd still be their own country, a sovereign state beholden to no one. So the term minority couldn't have meant someone who loses a political battle either. China makes its own decisions. So what does Duke mean by the term? Physical features. He thinks that the Chinese are minorities because they look different than he does, and they all look differently to him in similar ways. As much as North America and Europe are politically diverse regions, both our liberals and conservatives seem to hold Uncle Duke's worldview. White is the term that we use to designate the folks that get the most attention, and people of color is the phrase that has come to denote everyone else. Somehow, whatever skin shade someone from Thailand has, or from Ecuador, or from the Ivory Coast, they're all considered part of the same group. They're all non-white. Now, maybe, maybe we could explain this if we thought of the two terms as code for colonizers and the colonized, but this doesn't really work either. If it were about colonialism, the former Soviet bloc countries would all be considered non-white, and Ukrainians would be losing their residual whiteness as we speak. And not for nothing, China itself was never colonized, although they did invade Vietnam, Korea, and part of Myanmar. There's no scenario in which Duke is right. The Chinese are not minorities. The same could not be said for Chinese immigrants, of course. Once someone becomes a naturalized American, they are numerically and politically a minority member in the United States. But they're not identified by their particular country of origin, at least not by the media and the census. Chinese immigrants are called Asian Americans, a category that includes people from Japan, Korea, Vietnam, India, the Philippines, and other countries. Russia, which is in Asia, is not included in the list. But Mongolia, which is between China and Russia, is. It's all pretty confusing. Maybe this wouldn't matter if all I was talking about was demographics, but that's not what the word minority is supposed to do. As a cultural and political term, it's supposed to tell us not where someone is from, but how we're supposed to feel about them. If you're a conservative majority member, you're supposed to be suspicious of minorities. A liberal one, you're expected to celebrate their proximity. 
If you're a conservative minority member, you're supposed to see someone of a different minority background as corrupting your own. And if you're a liberal minority, you're supposed to claim that you're all in it together and that because you're all non-white, you're all basically the same. Now, this is overly simplistic, of course. There's lots to take issues with in my taxonomy. But my central point is that the term minority is as much an emotional sign point as it is a measure of power. And more often than not, it inspires negative emotions, not positive ones, except in one particular case, the term model minority. A model minority is a group that is deemed particularly economically successful, an outlier from the rest. Asian Americans are the most commonly cited example of model minorities, and this is what we're going to explore today. Is it good to be a model minority? Is it a compliment? Should all immigrants aspire to such designation? The answer to all these questions is probably no. On today's episode, we'll talk with our guest about the experience of such a label, not from the outside, but from within. She'll talk about what it means to be an Asian American philosopher, a Korean American philosopher, and not just in regards to the philosophical concepts she explores, but also how being categorized as a model minority affected her academic life. Not surprisingly, autobiography is central to understanding the experience of the marginalized. At the heart of our discussion will be the tension between the individual and the community and authenticity and culture. With this in mind, I will caution myself out loud to remember that because the term minority pushes us to think of group members as interchangeable, because we've all been raised to see all Asian Americans as the same as Uncle Duke did, I have to be careful not to see our guest as an official spokesperson for anyone other than herself. If she represents anyone, it's philosophy the same as me. Whatever the value of the majority-minority dichotomy may be, it runs deep in our culture and needs to be explored. And now our guest. Emily S. Lee is professor and chair in the philosophy department of California State University Fullerton. She's the author of numerous articles and editor of two volumes specializing in philosophy of race, phenomenology, and feminism. Emily, welcome to Why. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is always at Show. That's W-H-Y-R-A-D-I-O-S-H-O-W. You can always email us at askwhy at und.edu. Listen to our previous episodes for free, learn more, and donate at whyradioshow.org. Okay, so, Emily, that was a lot there. Am I making too big of a deal uh, about the term minority? Am I being an obsessive philosopher? Um, is Does it really have that kind of baggage, or, or, or should we just move on? Um, Jack, I, I want to say that I really appreciated your introduction. I, I think you actually phrased it incredibly well. Um, and if you are being too much of a philosopher, I think you're being a philosopher in the in the in a good way, in the right way. Really, um, I really appreciate your characterization of the situation. Really, is is this something that when you talk about you? face skepticism. I know that in the beginning, feminism was sort of thought of as not real philosophy. Folks who were academics in the 1960s and 70s, their work was dismissed. Is this happen when you talk about philosophy of race and, and minority or, or, or is the academy ready to deal with all of the, the complexity? I, I think it depends on the circles, much like the 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 dichotomy that you set up between conservatives and liberals um, among both the white and the minority populations. Um, I think it, it sort of depends where you are in that framework. There is a small 
but dedicated group talking about philosophy of race and taking philosophy of race very seriously. And But the majority of the philosophers, I would say at least 50%, um, do not think that it's really philosophy and or um, are kind of suspicious of it. They might relegate it more to ethnic studies or American studies or sociology and not necessarily philosophy. But so I guess I think it depends on the audience group. Um, what's the argument that the critics put forth um, and what's the weakness of that? Where, where do they get it wrong? Well, I think the, the main concern is philosophy aims to have uh, analyze or discuss that which is more universal. And I think inherently in philosophy of race is a denial of of just universal theories or aiming towards that which can be um, most generalized and instead aims towards uh, more of a specified and more specific um, knowledge. Um, I think inherently, even in political philosophy, especially including John Rawls's book, uh, Theory of Justice, he aims to um, universalize and or generalize as much as possible. And philosophy of race um, specifically goes against that in that we're aiming, uh, we try to theorize the specific races and uh, the specific experiences and how that challenges um a universalist understanding of how human beings are living in this world. When I teach my uh, 300-level uh, social and political philosophy class, which is j- basically John Rawls mm-hmm. and his critics, John Rawls was a philosopher in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, I always talk about how the, the, the sort of the question of contemporary political philosophy is – do we focus when we're when we're concerned with diversity? Do we focus on what everyone has as the same, or do we focus on difference? Do we focus on this universality that you mm-hmm. reference, or do we focus on particularity? Um, and uh, I'm assuming that philosophy of race is taking the second position, right? That 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 diversity means focusing on difference, not similarity. Am I interpreting that correctly? Um. I would agree with you to the, for the most part, except that more recently I've been trying to theorize. Um, I have at least one article entitled Identity Indifference, and that was inspired by Uma Narayan's work who talked about how too much of an emphasis on difference may relegate people to um, to be neglected and or treated as subhuman so I've been trying to think about both that we, we do have things, there are some universal elements as human beings, and that emphasizing that may be as politically important as emphasizing some of the, emphasizing the differences we have as well. Uh, I think uh, prioritizing just the universality may result in the ne- neglect of our differences, but I think overemphasizing our differences may end up isolating us from each other and not caring about each other. So so I've been trying to think about locating our universal shared common humanity as well as acknowledging that we do have differences. That term subhuman is, is so powerful. How how literally do we take mm-hmm. that term? How, how serious should we, you know, I mean, is it as horrifying as, as, as it sounds? 
Well, um, the term was initially introduced by Charles Mills in his book, The Racial Contract, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It is a response it's a great to John book. Mills's, yes. It's a, it's a response to John Mills's, um, A Theory of Justice. And um, not only did Charles, Charles Mills was, was sensitive enough to follow it after um, the sexual contract, which was uh, written by Carol, um, her last name is slipping me, but after Mills's book, there is the sexual contract and the racial contract, and it's in the racial contract that Mills forwards the idea that that blacks were relegated to the subhuman um, as those who cannot participate in society uh, precisely based on their looks. And I would take that seriously. Um, Mills said that that was the reason why the blacks were relegated you know, where it was justified to enslave them. So, so I, I think I take the word um, very seriously. I think it explains a lot of present day circumstances as well in terms of justifying the, the different economic and political stances of um, African Americans. Mill's book is fascinating, and it's actually pretty accessible. It's short, it's direct. And one of his theses is that when people talk about the social contract, they, they like to talk about it in terms of individuals making an agreement to be self-governed. But what the, what the social contract really was, what the racial contract is, is an agreement about white supremacy, an agreement about what it means to be white, what it means to have power over, over black people, what it means to be black. And so so that itself is dichotomous, right? There's the white and black. So, so does that mean that Asians, Asian Americans, um, however we want to call the term, are they not parties to the contract at all? Well, that's interesting. I do wonder if um, uh, Charles Mills's racial contract prioritized the relationship in the West in terms of um, between whites and blacks. Right, because I do think that at least in in Asian countries there is more of um, you know I think there there might have been a, a social contract among Asians there. I think it is in the the migration or the immigration over um, that um, the, the concept of Asian American uh, complicates Mills's analysis, right? Because I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm thinking that at least to the extent that there are Asian countries, that perhaps there were um, contracts among among the Asians, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's only when Asians have immigrated over and became Asian Americans that one wonders where do they sit within um, Mills's racial contract. I mean, the best way I could think of uh, understanding that is that Asian Americans' history in the United States is that there are times when they were relegated as the same as African American. They were, they were Chinese were designated as black in our history, um, to, uh, and at uh, and at other times relegated as yellow and being slightly different from blacks, but having most of the there are a lot of laws and rights that were similar to African Americans, and then I think it's only recently that um, people are, are suggesting that they may be like Jews and have become white. So, yeah. So the so the racial categorization of Asian Americans have changed historically. 
can you have the concept of Asian or Asian American without the concept of East and West? I mean, when you look at the history of particularly uh, the commercial progress of, of, of the world, the East and West are much more intertwined than than people say. And of course, right now in the world, America wouldn't exist without China. China wouldn't exist without other countries, et cetera. India certainly is is a part of it. Is is the notion of Easternness uh, essential to Asianness, or can they be examined as 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 different ideas, as different concepts? Yeah, I was just just thinking about that because um, I I keep thinking about Elaine Kim's book. She has a book called East to America. So that's from the perspective of Asia that it's actually the United States that's Easterners and not Asia <laughs> being as being West. So I think context matters in terms of determining who's East or West. So I'm trying to think about how that complicates your your question. And I, I guess the the term East and West are not absolute is 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 what I'm suggesting. I, I do think that there is still a distinction being made about the difference between the, I guess what we call now um, the the West and the the developed West as opposed to the East. Um, so I, I do know that Asian Americans are trying to challenge that dichotomy of designating one group as East or one group as West. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, no, you actually you 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 really anticipated my next one, which is which is that is East just a reference to direction traveled, or is it itself such a a laden term? Because you use mm-hmm. the word developed, right? I mean, South Korea is as developed as you get. Japan is mm-hmm. as developed as you get. I mean, I've spent time in Beijing and Shanghai, and they're you know international cities, uh, and so. What is the ladenness of East and what would we, I don't know, what would we get? What would we learn by considering America as part of the East as, as opposed to America as part of the West? Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, even the designation of Asia as the East has everything to do with the initial state where Europe was trying to expand out of its borders. Um, I don't know if it was for um, searching for spice or or just searching for, you know, um, to transcend their borders, or, or, or I mean, there there are a myriad reasons of why Europeans were expanding out, and I think the the initial designation of Asia as the East had to do with um, the Europeans being able to write history right? and and dominate um, what we call knowledge at this point. Right? They are the ones who. Uh, had an epistemic priority and determine what what is knowledge and or what is true and I think it's from that initial um, explore exploratory and or colonizing moves that Asia became designated as the East and um, the United States get, got designated as the West but at this point um, yes we refer to all of the um, the West has developed and the and the East has developing. Um, even it, as you say, it, it is correct that you know South uh, South Korea, Japan, Ch- large parts of China, large parts of India are are incredibly well developed. And I think depending on one's class level in each of these, you you get as much of the uh, amenities to being developed. <laughs> 
this is a, a, an unfair question to ask right before the break. <laughs> but okay. you used the phrase epistemic authority and you and you talked about how it means, you know, deciding what truth is. And of course, ep epistemology is the study of knowledge. And when we talk about uh, America versus Asian and school systems, uh, yeah. Asian school systems are often talked about as focusing on memorization and technology and math and science and um, and and. That's why, quote, they're ahead of us, whatever that means. Is that part of the foreignization of people? Is, is classifying a different body of knowledge and a different kind of education also a form of othering? Or is that just debates about schooling and it's people choosing what they want to prioritize for their own funding? I would have to say the latter. Um I mean, there there may be a kernel of truth that perhaps memorization is as a as a tool is used in the school systems, but I, I would not think that it's the entirety of the educational system in in Asia. Um, I was just thinking about this because um, I I was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and every single time I go there, there seems to be a um, modern Chinese art exhibit there, and I am just totally fascinated by their their modern art. It's really quite brilliant, and I, I cannot imagine that an entire country that has been educated to only memorize could come up with some of the the modern art that we were seeing there. Um, it, it rivaled anything we are doing here in the United States. And I felt the same way when I was in parts of South America. Mexico City especially had this amazing modern art. And I, I think that kind of, of, I mean, the art, the modern art just showed a lot of political and conceptual thinking on political awareness of the current situation in terms of the relationship between the United States and China. I can't imagine that such some that kind of conceptual art could have arisen if their entire education system was all about just memorizing. So, so I, I completely agree with you that I I think it's the latter in that it, uh, describing Asia Asia's education system that way is part of the um, colonizing and part of the othering of these countries. And um, I highly advocate uh, at least. Um, Questioning that, um, I just cannot imagine that all the population group are subject to that only that kind of education twenty four seven. That's a super compelling transition. And when we get back, we're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about assimilation. We'll dive directly into the question of what a model minority is and what that and, and how that affects people. But before that, you're listening to Emily Lee and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions But Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower.
are back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Emily Lee about the concept of model minority and minorities in general. And, and, and in looking over Emily's uh, biography, uh, I discovered a very fun coincidence that she and I went to the same high school, the Bronx High School of Science. If I did my math right, I graduated in 1987. And if I did my math right, she graduated in about 91. And we probably overlapped one year, although I... You know, I don't know that we knew each other. But one of the things about the high school that was interesting was there was a group that, you know, at least when I was there, called the ACS, the Asian Cultural Society. And the Asian Cultural Society was an ethnic club that that a, a lot of different uh, people belonged to. But in my memory, they were mostly Korean. They were hipsters. They were Frisbee players. There was a sort of it was it, it was a term that we used to denote a kind of sort of fashion and a kind of person rather than the ethnicity. And I guess the question I want to ask you is... Was I a member? <laughs> well, I, 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 well, I actually didn't even occur to me to ask you that, but I probably should. Um, were you a member? And is that why it's the Asian Cultural Society as opposed to, say, the Asian Student Union or something like that? <laughs> Did I describe it fairly? I... I... I think so. It's so funny because um, I, I graduated in '90, actually, and so it's, okay. it's you know, it's been a it's been a long time, and I haven't thought about it that much anymore. But um, I have to admit, I wasn't a member. I was kind of a a, a very serious person, <laughs> especially that, and just kind of worrying about my future. So I, I wasn't. Uh, as involved in uh, developing my social life as much. Um, but I, I really am not sure why they called it Asian Cultural Center. That's a really good point, uh, Jack. I didn't, I didn't think about that. You're right. Um, I, when I, the, I think you were right that there was, they were a bunch of hipsters. They were not necessarily um, re- recent immigrants at all. I, 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 I guess, um, uh, I, as you know, because... Bronx High School of Science is a specialized high school. Most of the students uh, tested into it. And so I don't know if that's why I, I recall Bronx Science not having a lot of recent immigrants and instead having a lot of um, at least like uh, second generation or 1.5 generation students. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if that's why they were more invested in trying and keeping the culture um, or a sense of culture alive um, there as well. That, that, that is interesting. And um, I think you're right. They, they were just the East Asianers, right? They were the um, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, I think, um, more than any other Asian population groups there. So, that, yeah, that's interesting to think about. <laughs> I'm resisting the urge to play the "Hey, did you know this person?" game, and we could do that <laughs> off the air. But um, yeah. but but, and if you were a serious student, then I guarantee we didn't know each other because I always describe my my, my experience as failing my way through the number one academic uh, high school in the country. I was a very very bad student, and I ended up getting into college on a special program for nerdy wells. But but that's 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 a different question. The 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 idea of recent immigrants versus uh, uh, established families is super. Interesting, and so I wonder if you would mm-hmm. talk about what a model minority is, and then in the process, or or after you do that, I'm going to ask you how much of this is about class and is about generations. Um, yeah, I mean, what 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 what, um, what is a model minority? Oh, a model minority was a term coined by a 
New York Times author um, back in the, I think it was 1960s, the cover had a bunch of um, kids who had Ivy League sweatshirts on, and they were all clearly headed towards the Ivy Leagues. And, but um, he said that the reason why um, Asian Americans were the ones who were likely to do so, do economically well, especially by getting into the Ivy Leagues, was because their cultural values were similar to white Americans. Um, so that's how he dubbed model minority. Um, specifically, I think I think he was suggesting um, uh, he was suggesting something by um, eliminating other people and suggesting other people do not have the same values, specifically um, African American, Latin American, and 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 others. Um, so that's how he designated um, Asian Americans. I, I guess I could go into all the problems with that uh, um, or model minorities, but I, I, I'm not sure if this is the right time for that. Yeah, I want to I want to hold off on that just for a second, mm -hmm. but I do want to dive into it. Mm -hmm. um, is it? I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Is it uh, the term values? We, we we talk about values all of the time, and values in American politics mm -hmm. gets associated with family values, which is code for conservative Christian. But then there are cultural values. Mm -hmm. To what extent can you pair? the term minority with the term value. Are those artificial? Are those genuine attempts to describe a sort of traditional family life? I mean, it, it seems like associating one complex term with an even more complex term only muddies the water rather than clarifying things. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I know that what they are, are trying to get at is, I mean, usually the kinds of values that are uh, prioritized and are va or valued, I guess, is is um, hard workingness, willing to sacrifice on the immediate run and um, n not lead a hedonistic life in the in the immediate run in order to uh, prepare for the future in some sort of way. Um, and, and a colleague of mine said it's very much like the. Um, the grasshopper and the ant story, I think, where one animal is someone who prepares for the winter and the other animal just sort of luxuriates and enjoys the summer. And so, um, these sort of values um, are usually associated with um, the Asian Americans. But, but I, and I, and I don't, know, I don't know. I think that um, our, our values like that emphasize more in one culture versus another culture. Um, I don't. I'm not sure. I I think it's hard to say what are the reigning values for one culture, and instead, it makes me think about how the language in the um, somewhere around the 1960s to 1980s, the the language of um, describing the poor has been that they have their own. Um, Values that the poor live a um, live the life that they live, and the reason why they are poor is because of um, their their own culture. That I think it was called the culture of poverty, or um, so that at some point there was a turning to justifying that the poor are poor because they want to be poor and because of their own very practices. And uh, turning away from thinking about the poor or poor because their circumstances are 
they they were born into circumstances that that are very difficult to get out of and that the state can get involved in this so so the language of culture and values are are usually used in a um strategic way to sort of justify a certain certain turns in how we should view people um um, I, I guess um, I'm sounding like uh, Nietzsche and his questioning of um, the use of the language of morality to control population groups. Um, yeah, so I'm ending up with uh, the chain suspicion of moral values. Well, and, 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 and it's super interesting to hear the modern version of this because – from the late 17th century on, uh, in England and in, in, in other countries, uh, there was this dichotomy between the deserving poor and the undeserving exactly. poor. And the deserving yeah. poor were people who, as you describe, were mm-hmm. poor for no fault of their own, uh, and they deserved help. Mm-hmm. Whereas undeserving were people who were lazy, shiftless, you know, exactly. or taking advantage of the of the system, yeah. right? You know, the yeah. Ronald Reagan's welfare queen, right, exactly. who drives the Cadillac yeah. because she gets so much money from the government. Exactly. So, so yeah. I guess the question then is, is the phrase model minority, is it a compliment? Does someone want to be a model minority? If someone says, hey, you're a member of a model minority, are they praising you? I think that people think they are, but I think that actually what's going on is um, doing a couple of things. I think, one, it's suggesting that in the United States there are no barriers for economically climbing the ladder, and hence those who are not climbing the ladder, it's their fault. So I think, on the one hand, by isolating Asian Americans out as the model minority, what they are doing is saying, oh, if African Americans or Latin Americans are not climbing as fast as Asian Americans, then it's really their fault. So on the one hand, I think what it's doing is drawing lines of who are succeeding and who aren't succeeding and blaming those who are not succeeding as a result. Um, On the other hand, too, I think even for the Asian American community, since they are the since they're designated as model minorities, um, it, it seems like they're saying, oh, you're inevitably going to succeed. And hence, it, you know, there, there is no sense of giving credit to the Asian American people who are climbing the economic ladder. There's a sense of inevitability about it because you are um, Asian American. And, and for me, that has been one of my concerns because I know that there are Asian Americans living in poverty. And so I, I wonder about the Asian Americans who are not climbing the economic ladder so easily. And from my experience, I have noticed that even from Bronx science, those who went on to state schools and those who went on to um, or the private elite liberal arts schools, there has been a difference in where they are economically. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, what I said made sense right now. <laughs> it was clear or not. But... No, it, 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 it makes perfect sense. And, and, and I think it's um, just to make your point even more starkly, I, mm-hmm. I look at all my Facebook friends and mm-hmm. the folks uh, from high school and where they are now. And, you know. And this is emphasized by the fact that I was a crappy, crappy student, and I and I can't overestimate. You know, I can't oversay that. If my best friend Gail were on the phone right now, I could I I could <laughs> provide the evidence. But I look at where I am economically and where my black friends from Bronx Science are economically, mm-hmm. and I'm you know shoulders above them for no deserving reason. 
right? And 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 I suspect if you look at other subgroups in in, in the high school, it's it's the same. And so, I guess the I'm, I'm trying to th- the. So basically, and tell me if I get this right. Mm-hmm. The pro- one of the problems with the phrase "model minority" is. If you succeed, you get no credit for it because it was inevitable. But if you fail, you are totally to blame for it because the world was your oyster and and, and you blew it off. Um, If that's the case, and and if that's the case, does the phrase eradicate the idea of individuality? Are there no individuals in model minority communities? Mm -hmm. Is it all just collective? Mm -hmm. I think that this speaks back to... um the difference between uh, political um, philosophy and philosophy of race, right? I think that um, uh, much like any stereotypes, the the attempt to universalize and or generalize complicates um, any attempt to any attempt at particularity or individuality, right? So I think think stereotypes by definition aim to uh, at least dissuade and or consider less important the uh, the particularities of, of individuals, right? So, yeah, I think that's the case. Can I say one thing, though, too, um, about, uh, sure. uh, about the modal minority? I, I do want to insist that, I mean, I think the, the stereotype does not serve Asian Americans well. And one of my main reasons at this point is that it... It causes um, uh, intra-minority conflict um, in in terms of it positions African Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans, or at this this particular stereotype positions Asian Americans against African Americans and, and Latin Americans, and and I and to me that's still the the biggest uh, danger I think. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to underestimate the impact on Asian Americans themselves, ourselves, but I think that um, I, I still don't, I, I still find it incredibly dangerous to uh, define other other minorities as not having the same values to economically succeed, right? So I think, I still think that's really dangerous too, so... Is is this a, a, a strategic critique? And what I mean by that is... Does this uh, intra-minority conflict prevent people from unifying and uh, yeah. politically organizing? And um, or is it an identity critique because it messes with the self-image and the self-esteem that one associates with one particular minority identity? I think if I'm understanding you correctly, because I'm not sure if I understand the second part of your question, but I think if I'm understanding you correctly, I'm going to agree with you on the first one. I think David Kim said that it, that he thinks that the modern minority myth is the probably the, the uh, most strategic and dangerous um, tool by um, by white um, supremacists in the 21st century. So he especially describes this, and I agree with him that it is a method of divide and conquer so that um, the different um, minority groups or ethnic groups or, um, you know, 
don't work together or don't align together and or don't see that their plights have similar similarities. Um, that part I will completely agree with you with. But I think I'm not quite understanding your second the second part of your question if you if you want to articulate that one again. Sure. Let, let, let me try again, because I, I, I think the political stuff is super interesting as well. Mm-hmm. But um, so I guess what I meant was so much of, of, of how we control people and so much of people's own destiny is based on what kind of self-image is imposed on them. And mm-hmm. so presumably a model minority member will look in the mirror and say, you are the kind of person who succeeds, right? Kierkegaard mm-hmm. once says that, 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 that the man, he says man, right? He says mm-hmm. the man who is not Napoleon doesn't look in the mirror and says, I am not Napoleon. He looks in the mirror and laments that I am not the kind of man who is Napoleon, right? Yeah. And so the, the Asian American looks and says, I'm the kind of person who succeeds and the African-American or or the, the Latin American looks in the mirror and says, I'm not the kind of person who succeeds. And so I guess the question was, is is, is the critique deep on that level as well? Does the, does the term model minority mess with the self-image as well as the political organizing? Yes. Yes. I, yes. And if anything, I should... <laughs> I think what you're doing is actually being asking me a really nice question to sort of talk about the way I've been talking about the model minor, minority myth is that I, I think the, the the political critique has been made. It has been made by other Asian American scholars and Asian American studies ever since its inception in 1966. But um, my analysis of and my discussion of the model minority has been precisely on this level that you're talking about in terms of I um, I am pondering what does the existence of the stereotype do for uh, for individual people for individual Asian Americans who grow up with this stereotype in place and the impact it has on on them um, with the stereotype in place I think um, I think the stereotype does not affect um, or perhaps is less impactful for perhaps middle class or upper class people. But I think the existence of the stereotype, I I think, has an impact on especially the um, Asian Americans living in poverty or or struggling economically. And and I know that there are uh, specific populations that uh, that are struggling economically. And I think the existence of this um, stereotype doesn't really help them. I have to tell you that one of my underlying reasons for considering this way of thinking about uh, the impact of the model minority myth on the Asian American person is that um, especially during the the recession that we went through, I, I guess 15 or so years ago, the, the latest uh, recession we had, um, I was struck by the number of um, Korean Americans um, and suicide attempts. Um, so I, I think it's those images that, that made me sort of wonder about um, the existence of this um, stereotype. So... And the impact on the individual person, um, the individual Asian American person. I found that that part of your writing super interesting and information that I did not know about the suicide rates uh, in Asian American communities. And 
wonder if you talk a little bit about more, more about that. But also, there was a period of time within the last 10 years or so where there was a lot of attention to what got called Korean anger. There mm-hmm. was a, a huge article in the New York Times magazine about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and A, that seems to run counter to the model minority myth, but B, it seems to support this idea of despair and frustration. Talk a little bit about that, if you if you wouldn't mind, about the suicide rates, why that's important. And also, I'm curious how you feel, if you remember that discussion, how that fits into the whole discussion. You know, I, I did not read this article in the New York Times magazine about Korean anger. I would love to see it. I, I will say that I, I was thinking about there there is a specific uh, family in, in L.A. where the father... I think shot every member of his family and only the daughter survived and she had to have some serious surgery done on her face um, afterwards and her face was in the cover of I think the LA Times um, magazine and uh, it was images like that that were really quite startling um, for me so when I was writing that article, when I heard about the high rates of suicides among um, Asian American women specifically, I guess I just wanted to think about that along because as I was finding out about these high rates of suicides from Asian American women, that I I was um, I had a, it was also the time when the pill. Uh, report came out that Asian Americans self-described themselves as being the happiest with their lives and uh, the direction of where their life was going. And I guess I just, I, I found the contrast in the two statistics really startling and something I wanted to to talk through um, uh, and to think about. Uh, I, I guess for me, I didn't want to take the, um, the cultural turn. I think uh, too many Asian Americans ourselves, as well as I think uh, white America, like to attribute so much of these uh, distinctions on culture. And and I, I guess I'm I uh, much like our earlier discussion has shown, it, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what is the culture. And and so th- this is why I, I guess I wanted to talk about not about um, Asian culture, but about uh, the situation of. Um, Asians living in America, Asian Americans, and what the particular situation in in America um, has done to um, facilitate some of these reactions or or um, ways of uh, living in this society. But I, I I haven't seen an article about Korean anger. Do you mind saying a little bit more about that, Jeff? I I remember uh, it, it was it was a phenomenon that that the writers were, were saying was endemic in the community and largely male. Mm-hmm. And that what the, the, the theory was was that there was a particular kind of anger that was pent up, that was hard to control, and that would be re- released in very inopportune moments mm-hmm. and uh, a self-destructive existential anger. And And I guess one of the reasons why I remembered it is that I certainly felt that amongst some of my Korean friends growing up. Uh, There was an incident, you may actually have been at Bronx Science when it happened, where a friend of mine just had a breakdown. He was a 
martial arts expert and stood outside the cafeteria and started breaking all of the glass um, oh my goodness. Uh, trophy cases with his hands. Wow. And and everyone was just watching and 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 it just it came out of nowhere. And then my really good friend, John, uh, would have these bursts of anger uh, when he felt that we were teasing him uh, sort of, you know, Ethnically, my uh, my friend Pedro, a uh, Cuban immigrant, used to tease him and 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 call him Chinese just to get his goat, mm-hmm. and he would get really really angry at that. Mm-hmm. And so there was something about the article that spoke to 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 my experience with 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 my Korean friends that I didn't see in in other population that felt different that black anger it felt different than Jewish anger and um and so that's why it stuck with me but i guess the, the the question that comes out of that is how much of that is i mean you're not an expert on this and you haven't read the article so mm-hmm. i want to figure out a way to ask the question that mm-hmm. you can fairly answer but you're talking about culture and surely there's got to be a difference between the culture of being Korean in Korea and the culture of being a Korean American in America. How much of this is about being subject to a majority culture and how much of this is about the tension between authenticity and assimilation? What does it mean to be a Korean American in reference to the Korean heritage and 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 how much pressure? How does the minor the model minority sort of model uh, craft what it means to be a real X, a real Korean, a real Japanese person, a real Chinese person, a real Filipino, et cetera, a real Asian when you're an Asian American at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh- I mean, I I know that there are are differences from Asian Americans um, living here, Asian Americans as opposed to Asian Asians. I mean, personally, uh, and I know quite a few Asian Americans go through this um, as a as a um, 1.5 generation. I think um, quite a lot of people like spend their first year out of college going back to, well, I went back to Korea and quite a lot of people did this just to go check out, right. What, what are Koreans or what are real Koreans? And, and, um, I definitely did feel like I'm not one of them. I mean, even my body has grown differently. I'm, I'm, I'm bigger, I'm taller. I'm, I'm, like um, I let I let myself have freckles and I don't you know they're just um, things about um, where I, I I think growing up in the states I, I where I'm definitely not um, just Korean and and it, it's that experience that does make me really relate to the dreamers who were brought here as children and they they make clear that you know they're not. Um, from their original countries because they've grown up here. This is all they know. Um, and so I, I definitely um, feel that. But I think this question of, um, yeah, is the anger is the anger that described by this article and um, is it a result of living here in the United States and growing up here or is it something distinct from um, Korea? I think... I want to, instead of answering that question, because I, I, f- I feel like there's probably no absolute answer to that. Um, there's probably some 
some element of both, okay, and we'll never quite know exactly what that element is. And I think that's um, that's why that's one of the reasons why um, I specialize in phenomenology. It's all these sort of ambiguous, not absolutely certain kind of knowledge that that I um, want to at least. Um, explore without actually looking for uh, a way to uh, say without um, certainty that it's only this or only that, but entertaining the idea that it's both and then probably some other stuff as well, right? And so on the one hand, I want I want to put, uh, put aside the question of is it because they're Asians growing up in the United States or is it a part of Asian culture? I'm going to say some of each and then some and but and instead of that question I guess I wanted to get back to this article and the depiction of Koreans as having this very kind of unique sort of anger right because I, I find that so interesting because I see a parallel between that and the way that um, the narrative about domestic violence in um, in uh, minority populations so there there have I, I've I worked as a board member for the Korean American Family Service Center, which is a domestic violence um, service center, I was on the board for over seven or to eight years, and and uh, from that work, I've become just sort of um, I, I've looked into uh, epidemics of domestic violence, and I do know that before the passage of the Domestic Violence um, Act, as Kimberly Crenshaw has written about. There, there have been depictions of African American men and uh, Latin American men as as having all this um, anger and as taking it out on their families. So, to me, I see sort of parallels of even isolating the anger as very specific to Korean men, to the, the to the same sort of strategy of isolating. Um, this this tendency for domestic violence and only specific ethnic groups. So I, I kind of wonder about about whether this is about the truth of do they have this anger or not, or should this discussion really be about um, strategically what's going on in attempting to depict certain population groups as having an innate emotional um, character that um, um, that is uncontrollable. I, I think it, it might be part of a um, a, a strategy of um, of othering them. If, is that is that fair to say? I, I think that's where I, I'd like to go because I think until we pass the Domestic Violence Act, there was no recognition that you know um, white men show anger too, right? I mean, I, 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 as I understand it, the the uh, the number of internal uh, within the borders of the United States, the I think it was during the um, in the last couple of years, we noticed that the most amount of, if, if we think about um, the gun, um, the shootings in the United States, it, it is uh, the acts of young white men that have taken the most number of lives, right, um, in the United States domestically. So, so yeah, I guess I, I find dangerous um, isolating anger or a very specific kind of anger to one um minority group if that's if that's okay to say that 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 makes perfect sense 
Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense to mm-hmm. me, uh, especially since when, you know, at these school shootings and church shootings, yeah. the, the, the young white men are often called troubled young men or spurned, you know, yeah. he, he couldn't handle rejection. It wasn't. Yeah. But so, so I, I guess then. And positioned as an and positioned as an exception to the white population. Right. Whereas right. for the Koreans or they're positioned as endemic to the population group. So so I find that. Quite dangerous. Yes, please. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. Of course. And and so, does that mean that the phrase "model minority" is, and maybe minority in general, is a form of essentialism? And by essentialism, I mean that it reduces the population mm-hmm. to one specific necessary characteristic that yeah. everyone has of that group has in common, and that um, has to be acknowledged in order to describe. Uh, the character and, and the humanness of that person. Is, is, is model minority an essentialist term? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> keep keep, keep going. Know, as, I, as I previously said, certainty is, a, is, is one of the things I give up, and here I give you a very certain answer. <laughs> why, why yes? Um, I think for all the reasons you just you just mentioned. Um, and I guess what I guess most of my work is trying to defray the necessity of uh, describing Asian Americans that way, um, um, both in terms of by insisting on the variety of the diversity of Asian Americans, right, as well as on just um, st- strategically thinking about the functioning of the um, identity group. Um, um, I think empirically, it's just simply not true, right? So, if empirically it's it's not true, then um, then what what is the function of it, right? Um, uh, in, yeah. In a minute, I wanna I wanna talk about a little bit about phenomenology, explain what that is, and then ask you about. Mm-hmm. A little bit about autobiography, but but I, I have to ask since we're talking about mm-hmm. these sort of counter narratives right now, um, mm-hmm. how does the COVID uh, anti rise in anti Asian sentiment, particularly anti Chinese sentiment, uh, affect the model minority myth? Is it is it you know it, it, I mean in times of crisis, in times of social unrest, people lash out. We know that, but. Is is this yeah. particular wave of bigotry? Is it going to chip away at the at the model minority myth, or is it is it you know all part of the same package in some way? As I understand it, in the history of Asians in the state, it there, um, I think uh, there have been ways of depicting Asian Asian Americans as. Um, uh, as foreign, just foreigners, right? Foreigners were unwanted, unneeded, unnecessary to the United States. Um, and I think the modern minority theory is, 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 I think its particular articulation is more recent, but there, there have always, alongside the modern minority myth, have, have always been narratives of, um, that, that Asian, Americans are foreigners, period. And so, and, and as a result, there have been several times in the history of the United States where 
um, as foreigners, they have been situated as easy as easy targets whenever there ha- uh, there have been um, you know, difficulties within in the uh, in our in our society. The most graphic example of that is putting uh, Japanese Americans in internment camps during World War II, which was not only, uh, you know, an official policy, but sanctioned by the Supreme Court in the Karamatsu decision. Right. So so we can see really graphically uh, the ability to take even one group of Asians and just call them foreigners within the menace within, so to speak. Mhm mhm yeah I mean, yes that's absolutely a graphic description of that and I, and I and I think of the the killing of Vincent Chin and where the the two gentlemen who who beat him and killed him and he was a chinese american just taken to be um a japanese american there's a there's clearly a mixing like and a confusion among the the different um, Asian American population. So even as I want to respect the the different Asian Amer- Asian countries and Asian pop- Asian American population groups, I think I also want to acknowledge that that for Asian American Asians living in the United States, there's a sense in which our um, our fate is linked in in many ways. Um, this recent instantiation of it, um, I think. I'm not sure that the animosity is only directed toward the the t- Chinese. I think there's definitely a confusion of, among of the Chinese onto other Asian pop, Asian populations. Um, so and and I don't know if um, even if it does sort of bump the model minority myth up, up somewhat and perhaps defray it to some extent. Um, I, I I think um, I'm sure. Others will come up. Right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think for sure others will come up. So, yeah. So, yeah. A, a, as we sort of wind down, um, you talked about phenomenology, which is the study, uh, the philosophy of experience, the study of, of experience and the structures of experience. And it gets really, really complicated really quickly. But one of the ways that mm-hmm. you bring experience in is by talking about people's story, people's bi- autobiography. And I wonder if you talk just a little bit about. Uh, if and how this has affected you personally, your your academic life, your identity. Now, to our listeners, right? This is not a confessional. This is isn't therapy. You don't have to reveal any deep secrets. But mm-hmm. but I just wonder if, mm-hmm. in some sense, right, the the journey from, I mean, your, your your parents were immigrants, right? And and and, I mean, is this something you felt in your day to day life? And is this something that is manageable or inescapable um well let me just back up a little bit in that and say that so phenomenology um as a uh area of philosophy and as a method was just i think trying to avoid the um the what tamila ponti calls uh, intellectualizing um ideas in philosophy where we kind of got ahead of ourselves and he he wanted he followed uh, Edmund Husserl's position of actually describing the things in the world first so that we could we could make sure to get get our ideas about the world right by taking a clean assessment right and accurate as possible assessment of the 
of the things in the world, um, of, of our experience. And hence, that's why the, the focus back into, are we actually describing our experiences correctly or are we projecting our ideas, our desires, our wants onto the things in the world and then just describing it much like um, when we anthropomorphize animals, right, or plants or, or, or whatnot. So he, I think they were just aiming to not do that and try to be more accurate about um, our, our, our experiences of the world. Yeah, Husserl called this bracketing the truth, right? And he and he wanted to say, mm-hmm. you know, the question of why is secondary to the question of, you know, what a person's experience is. And that and I guess that's why I I wanted to ask you about your autobiography, because certainly if this stuff doesn't have real impact on real people, then we're just intellectualizing, right? Um, and if we spend mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. talking about why and not how or, 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 or you know, the, 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 the serious consequences, then philosophy becomes the most ivory tower, useless sort of aspect. So, so again, without getting yeah. too personal, is, is this something that you found necessarily intertwined to the Asian American experience? Um, you know, I don't think that I entered phenomenology thinking that. And uh, I think I, I did not start writing about um, being an Asian American until I was um, invited to do so. Um, I think the the first invitation to really consider being an Asian American woman and um, the political relevance of this has uh, came from Donna Marcano when she was organizing a special issue for Hypatia. She urged me several times to try to consider submitting something, and she said, "Consider really consider reading and, and writing about um, what the importance of being an Asian American woman is to uh, philosoph- to philosophizing and." And so I think it, I, I think she might have seen before I did that because I was I think I was always just quite I'm not good at talking about myself so I think even though I was interested in philosophy of race my my way into philosophy of race has been through um, African American writers actually um, Audrey Lorde Zora Neale Hurston the, these people and so I think that. Um, as I said, because I'm not comfortable talking about myself, I didn't try to think about it in terms of the for, for Asian American subjects. Um, and I think it is it's uh, only through um, some urgings of uh, colleagues and friends in philosophy that I uh, saw that they were right. There there was clearly a in way to think about um, using the phenomenological method did suggest that um, trying to understand um, how my personal life can actually be used as some of the um, experiences to um, further think about um, philosophy of race. I I was probably too close to the subject to actually see that, oh, that's really clear. <laughs> and I apparently, yeah, I only came to it later. <laughs> and, 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 and that, of course, reveals 
a massive hole in the conversation that we just don't have time to talk about, and that is intersectionality mm-hmm. and this way that that being a woman and and uh, intersex with the the um, model minority. Uh, description and Asian-ness and, and uh, able-bodiedness and sexuality and all that kind of stuff that, mm-hmm. that has been the legacy of the last 15, 20 years. Hypatia is, a, is probably mm-hmm. the most prominent feminist journal, and I can certainly write them and ask them if they'll let our readers, uh, let me link to the, the article and let our readers read it f- for free because it's super, uh, it's super interesting and helps illustrate the kind of thing that you're talking about. So I guess since we're on the verge of another 90-minute conversation, <laughs> I have to call a, a halt yeah. to it. So I do want to say, Emily, this has been super interesting and uh, a topic that we really haven't talked about on this level, I think, in the entire history of, of the show. So thank you so much for joining us on Why. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for inviting me and for your incredibly generous questions. I, I have to say they're really well articulated. I felt that you were more articulate than me in many places. Um, and, yeah, thank you again for this uh, really, um, really nice interview. Thank you. Thank oh, you for well, your I, interest in this topic, too. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate it very much in the kind words. And I just emphasize that I am only as good as my guest. So, so I give you all of the credit. Uh, for those who are listening, this is Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We've been talking with, with Emily Lee about model minority and the meaning in the Asian American experience. I will be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Emily Lee about the idea of model minority. You know, I think about the history of backhanded comments about different ethnic groups and races, you know, how all black men can dance and have rhythm and how Jews are great with money and all this sort of stuff that that on the one hand, sounds like a compliment, but on the other hand, is really about taking a three-dimensional person and making them two-dimensional, taking an individual and making them interchangeable with everyone else in the group. That's what the phrase model minority does. And nowhere in the United States is this more explicit than the way that we have treated, talked about, thought about, and, and, and depicted Asian Americans, right? From the the racism in cartoons and movies to the reduction of the heritage that they bring to the fact to talking about Japanese, Korean, Chinese, uh, 
Malaysian, as if, as if they're all the same, right? As if you, you know, can't tell the cultures apart and the people apart and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I saw this interesting documentary uh, a few years ago about General Tso's chicken, the Chinese food General Tso's chicken, and how it's not Chinese, how it was invented in the United States, and how every small town Chinese restaurant has its own form of General Tso's chicken, how it really is personal, even though Americans think of it as an authentic Chinese food. And all of that is to say that once we get to a level deeper to talk about discrimination, prejudice, stereotyping, once we get past the initial discussion of good, bad, justice, injustice, we get to some really, really subtle places. And model minority may be the most subtle of all sort of arenas, the most subtle of all notions that that it does so much damage in such a pretty package. And that's what we talked about today. And that's what Emily really broke down for us in, in, in the clearest of ways. The idea that it's an insult, the idea that it rests on the concept of minority in general, the idea that it's it that's intertwined with the American history and the American experience. And so this is definitely a topic uh, more than many that we've had on the show that I think it's worth going back to. I think it's worth going back to this idea of model minority and asking ourselves how do we let this depict our vision of others? How do we let this con uh, tell us about ourselves? Because those who are subject to the term are subject to it externally and internally, politically and existentially. And that makes it powerful, dangerous, and certainly worth considering philosophically. You have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Please consider donating to the show at whyradioshow.org. But whether you donate or not, I thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>